All right, heads up homeowners. I don't know if you've paid attention, but all of a sudden the federal government is about to make it more difficult to access the equity of your home. And that change happens on September 1st. So I'm talking to you. If you think you might ever want to access the equity in your home, maybe you were hoping to do some home remodeling, add some square footage, upgrade the kitchens or bathrooms, or maybe you just wanted to consolidate some debt, get rid of some credit cards, lower your monthly payments, or maybe you just wanted to pull some cash out. It's important that you at least look into this before the end of the month. I'm talking right now by the end of August, because come September 1st, these guidelines are going to change and it's going to make it much more difficult to access that equity. So waiting just two weeks could really, really hurt your chances to access that equity. If you think you might ever be interested in this, now's the time to run the numbers and we'd be proud to help you at savewithconrad.com. You heard me right. That's savewithconrad.com. It's no cost, no obligation. And if we can't help you save some cash, we won't waste your time, but you need to run the numbers before the end of the month. You don't have to close by the end of August, but you do need to at least start your loan program before August 31st at savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, Equal Housing Lender. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? I am absolutely excellent, eh? Well, I feel like you were uh, probably due for some Canadian speak. You've probably lived in Toronto for a week or so, huh? Uh, basically, yes, man. But you know what really disappoints me the most is I didn't get not even one poutine. Well, I don't know what that is, but I know that you get it in Canada, and I know that you get your laughs here on Something to Wrestle, and we appreciate you guys hanging in there with us for another episode i had uh, a lot of fun on last week's show what was the feedback that you got bruce well first of all i had a shitload of fun on last week's show and most of the feedback i got was pretty damn good as a matter of fact yeah i think i like that, that. i like it when it's those kind of weeks you know what i'm saying i feel like uh the jericho episode the 20 year anniversary is something that has been long overdue people were always asking when are you going to do it and you know, I sort of jokingly said the date, knowing that, uh, that Friday would be the, the 20 year anniversary, but it felt like it would never come. And what do you know? It was here, uh, before it happened. And, and we had lots of good feedback and I even got uh, a couple of text messages from Mr. Jericho about the show. Apparently, uh, he says, uh, some of that stuff he's going to need to rebut at some point. So, uh, the snot thickens. Well, there you go. By God, he's welcome to it. Uh, if you haven't already follow us on Twitter, we sure would love to uh, have the interaction with you. Let you guys ask some questions. We had a lot of fun with our Jericho questions that we, uh, have in the bank and hope that you guys have some questions for us for our future topics, including SummerSlam 1999 and SummerSlam 1989, which is probably my favorite. We're going to do a watch along for that one. Really looking forward to it. But today it's all about SummerSlam 2004. And I got to tell you, there's a lot of interesting stuff on this show, but when I think about SummerSlam 04, I immediately think about Randy Orton, don't you? I absolutely do, because it was kind of the beginning of that Randy Orton era and the beginning of that anointment that Randy was going to be the future. And I dare say that he has been. I think that that was kind of the point of embarkation where he just kind of took off into the stratosphere and didn't look back. Well, let's go ahead and get started. Of course, we're covering SummerSlam because it went down on August 15th, 2004. So 15 years ago yesterday, right there at the Air Canada Center in Toronto. Huh? Something about SummerSlam in Toronto. This is a joint pay-per-view. 
not just because Bruce was there, but because it combined. Not both- in Canada. Oh, yeah. Eh? At the time. Now, you know, they got this cannabis stuff eh, uh, legal. Are you serious? It's legal now? It is legal now all how, over the country. How much fucking fun did you have up there? I never even, I made it between the hotel and the building and that was it. Yeah. That makes sense. I guess since you're working 21 and a half hours a week, but this, and hey, babe, uh, not a week, Man. a day. My apologies. He hears that I'm not doing anything the other rest of the time. Yeah. I mean, I might have really messed you up because I misspoke and said you work 21 hours a week. And if he finds that out, woo. Uh, so let's talk about it. Raw and SmackDown. It's the routine, I guess, for the big four pay-per-views for us to combine the rosters, both, you know, Royal Rumble, WrestleMania, SummerSlam and Survivor Series would see both Raw and SmackDown. These, um, joint big pay-per-views like this in this era, when there was a true, whatever that means, brand split, is it, uh, is everybody sort of happy to be back together? It feels like some of these guys are probably lifelong friends and then. In a moment's notice, all of a sudden they lose their traveling partner. It's got to be a bit like a family reunion when you get everybody together again, huh? Definitely. And it's also one of those moments where you really want to be a part of that event because they're, you're having your monthly pay-per-views and you're having your monthly shows where they were, I think at the time we were alternating months as to who had a pay-per-view and go raw to SmackDown, raw to SmackDown. And when we did the joint ones, it was kind of like that WrestleMania moment. Who's going to be on the joint one? Because obviously you couldn't have as many brand specific matches on the joint pay-per-view. So it was, it was a little more special and you wanted to be a part of that dual show. Let's, uh, let's talk about how we got here to this show. Uh, we're coming off vengeance 2004, which of course was a raw pay-per-view and during this time, there was a diva search contest going on during raw and Wade Keller would report the AP features a story on the new WWE divas contest taking place on raw. And the article says that raw viewers will vote via telephone and the internet to eliminate a raw diva contestant every week until the 13 finalists are whittled down to just one winner said WWE TV producer, Kevin Dunn. It's easy to go lowbrow. That's not where we're going with our product in general, or this search will be fighting our image for 50 years because there's 50 years before us. And we understand that. And uh, contestant Heather Tyndall said, WWE is looking for a host, not a wrestler, but quote, I could easily turn into a wrestler. So a lot to chew on there. We'll, we'll work backwards. I could easily turn into a wrestler. Do you remember whether it was tough enough or the diva search, anybody who's sort of from a, we'll call it a civilian background coming in and saying, oh, I could very easily be a wrestler. And did it ever turn out well? It feels like every time we've heard somebody say that, mm, it's not going to wind up so good for them. Well, first of all, it's not easy, but I think coming from the outside in, there was the perception that how, you know, how hard can it be? The ring's a trampoline. I, that, that can't hurt. Uh, the, you know, they think of the business is that, horrible F word, the fake bullshit and the people coming from the outside. Yeah. They thought that it looked easy until you get in there and you have to take your first bump or you have to hit the ropes for the first time or actually do something and perform. So there was a feeling, I think that there was a feeling from 
network executives that feel that, oh, come on, man, how hard can it be? It, it's you, you bounce around until they actually get a little closer to it and and feel it. But as far as diva search goes, um, hate's a strong word, so I'm not going to say I hated them. But let's just say that I was not a huge fan of the diva search. Let's talk about that. Whose idea was the diva search to the best of your recollection? And, and what were you guys hoping to accomplish? Are you hoping to really just get some mainstream publicity or did you think this was a genuine way to recruit talent? Well, it was a genuine way to recruit talent. Just try to grow from the outside in. And I don't remember whose idea was it, it came to us. I, my thinking and my remembering was it might've been Vince's idea or Kevin's idea, somebody, but I also think it came from one of those research groups that said, Hey, what if you did this? And I just, I hated it. I just, I, I, <laughs> I said, I wasn't going to say the H word, but I, I didn't like it because of the comment you just read earlier about, I could easily turn into a wrestler. Well, no, it's not fucking easy to turn into a wrestler. And when you look at it that way, th that discounts the entire search. It discounts the entire contest because it was 100%. It was a legitimate real contest that we did leave the voting and everything up to the audience. So, yeah. Because there, there was a prize at the end, you have all these rules that you have to go by, and, and everything was 100% uh, on the up and up as far as the votes and all that other bullshit. But it's – and that pissed me off too because the business is work. I want to hire who I want to hire. And, of course, we did after the fact, but I just wasn't a fan. And also the, the, the other part about it is – it would get into the the philosophical, and I've talked about this before, man, the philosophical differences of how people watch television and reality shows in particular and how I view it and how I believe that 95% of the television audience views reality shows, elimination reality shows. I, I am of the firm belief that people watch to see who goes, who's going to go this week. Who's going to be eliminated. You're not watching it to see who stays. Yes, you are subconsciously. You may have your favorites, but you also have the one that you want to go. You're looking to see who is going to not make the cut this week. And that philosophical difference uh, would, would come down to, no, God damn it. People watch. They want to root for somebody. Once they, they're, they, they lose, we don't care about them. And to me, that was the story. The story was who's going to be eliminated this week versus who's going to stay. Talk to me about Kevin Dunn's quote. It's easy to go lowbrow. That's not where we're going with our product in general or this search, you know? Well, I think that it's, it's in reference to just in general, looking at how are we going to present the females and how are we going to, to present them in this contest? And I don't think that anybody at this point in the game knew other than we were 
going to have a diva search. What did that mean? And we really didn't know. And nor did we really care. Are these going to be, um, are these going to be hosts? Are these going to be wrestlers? What's going to happen? And I think that the idea was one of, well, let's see what we get. And then we'll take it from there. Let's, uh, you know, uh, your product was definitely going low brow, but you're saying just as it relates, I mean, obviously he's trying to say with our product in general. And I mean, I know you want to give him a pass on that, but we're not too far removed from Brian panties matches and, and Dr. Heine and the kiss my ass club and may young giving birth to a hand, but that's always sort of been, you know, when, when you're doing the, the PR speak for WWE, you know, you've got to sort of spin it a little bit and say, oh, it was all smoky arenas. And now we've made it a big product. And there's no doubt that the presentation and the production was stepped way, way up, but inherently a lot of wrestling, not just WWE, I'm not picking on WWE, but I mean, WCW had all of that same stuff, you know, Viagra on a pole and Judy Bagwell on a forklift and Braun panties and mud matches and blah, blah, blah. So lots of silliness in wrestling, but isn't inherently wrestling by and large lowbrow? I don't think so. Not at all. I don't think so. I, I think that it's if people want to view it that way. Then that's how they want to view it. But I don't think so. No, I think that it's entertainment and I take a, I look at it from day one when I was four years old going and loving wrestling. I've always looked at it as that's what I love. And I, I've never looked at it as lowbrow. I've looked at some of the things that have happened in the business, not in the best of taste. Yeah. yeah I'm not saying necessarily taste. I'm but saying it's like, not lowbrow, but like when, when, when Christian would pull out ass cream or, or there would be a beaver cleavage segment, or there's the hoe train or Val Venus and, you know, choppy, choppy PP. I mean, there's lots of, come on, this is in, in poor taste. And that's what I mean. I think that a lot of it, that there was a lot of it that you could point to in specific. If you want to go in and point at specific situations like choppy, choppy PP, Ooh, choppy, choppy, pee pee. But to um, me, that's that's lowbrow comedy. There's nothing wrong with it. Listen, I enjoyed it. No, I'm I just think ju- it's tasteless. Okay, so what's the difference between lowbrow and tasteless, in your opinion? Well, you're categorizing the entire genre, and I, I think that if you want to look at that one, okay, if you want to look at that lowbrow, I just looked at it as bad television. You can't again when you look at everything that's on TV. What's what's tasteless? Uh, America's Got Talent has a guy going into the finals that comes out and strips down to tassels, and uh, is that tasteless? Is that low brow? Does it make the whole show low brow? No, I think that particular act is tasteless, but it's entertaining too to a lot of people. They love them. Let's talk about book sales. Uh, this is something that we've never really talked about here on the show, and I was fascinated in my research to find this tidbit. Wade Keller would write Rick Flair's autobiography sold 9,871 copies during its first week in release, which is more than Hulk Hogan's first week autobiography sales of 8,922 in 2002. However, Steve Austin's autobiography last year sold 12,952 copies in its first week, according to BookScan, which tracks retail, in-store and online book purchases nationwide. To date, the Flair book has sold 32,000 copies, more than half of what the Hogan book sold in hardcover, which was nearly 57,000, and the paperback edition has sold about 10,000 total. Austin's book at this point had sold 112,000 copies. 
And uh, Keller would say Flair's book won't beat out Austin's total sales, but it should end up ahead of Hogan's. Uh, Mick Foley's autobiography sales remain well ahead of Flair, Austin, and Hogan. Um, this is kind of interesting data to me because, well, I guess, frankly, I just assumed there were more books sold. I assumed that book sales were greater and that these would have been much higher numbers. And so when they're not, I'm really fascinated why WWE continued to do so many. These couldn't be a huge profit center. Did, did WWE just take the attitude of, Hey, it's, it's another form of media. And if there is media, we need to have a presence. We're that big of a brand and, and it's good for us to have our brand on bookshelves and, and, and we just need to be in the space because it's not like this is a big cash grab at these numbers. No, it, it, more than anything at the time, at this time, I believe that we still had a deal with whoever was publishing the books at the time. So the book publishers would come in and they would want X amount of books, whether they be all biographies or uh, features on WrestleMania or whatever they may be. So our deal was usually with the publishers. And I think that everyone was shocked at the what they consider a bestseller and what they consider to be, wow, this is really good for book sales. Because when you look at the numbers and you go, wow, 12,000 doesn't sound like a lot, but in the book world, in that genre, in that category, that's a lot of books that, that shocked me too, because it was in my head, I'm thinking millions. Well, I don't know if I thought it'd be millions, but I definitely thought it would be hundreds of thousands. And to find out that you know, the first week it's only 9,800 copies. That's just amazing to me, especially when you consider you know, as a wrestling fan, I thought, Hey man, they're plugging the hell out of this. This is everywhere. Everybody's got to get this, but obviously that was not necessarily the case. Now it's not a surprise that Foley's books did well, but it is a bit of a surprise that his sales would remain well ahead of flair, Austin and Hogan, because I think for the most part, most people would agree that those are probably bigger quote unquote names in professional wrestling. But for whatever reason, Foley was the guy when it came to the book department. What do you attribute that to? It was a better book. <laughs> so and word of mouth. Mick Foley wrote it. So so word of mouth. I yes, definitely. Mick Foley's was the first to come out, but it was very well written, and it was written by him. The rest of them all had ghost writers or somebody else writing their books for them. And I don't think that they were nearly as good as far as the end product. I thought Foley's was excellent. I thought that Mick did a great job writing the book and I found it very entertaining and it was true to Mick with the other books that came out. They were written by people who were quote, um, bestseller, bestselling authors that know how to write. Um, yeah, yippee fucking Kaye. They didn't know how, to me, they didn't know how to capture the voice in a lot of respects of the guys that they were talking about. Well, I mean, and, knowing what yeah. you're talking about is very important, especially this NFL season, because it's back, man. And that means it's fantasy football time. So dominate your league by subscribing to the number one fantasy football podcast on the planet, the Fantasy Footballers. How's that for a pro tip? You see, the fantasy footballers podcast is the most downloaded fantasy football podcast for a reason. 
you're going to get the most accurate rankings as measured by fantasy pro so you can win your league it's the most entertaining show in fantasy football and it's a fun way to get the leg up on your competition with shows every single day you can dominate your waiver wire find sleepers breakouts busts and values and win your league with the most current fantasy football information and have fun doing it the fantasy footballers was also the winner of iHeartRadio's best sports podcast and has won over 20 industry awards since 2015 they have a proven track record of helping people win their fantasy football league the fantasy footballers can be your secret weapon this fantasy season to take your team over the top so subscribe right now to the fantasy footballers podcast on apple Podcasts, spotify stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts you can also listen to them on the web at thefantasyfootballers.com. Subscribe now and dominate your fantasy league. Well, let's talk about the flare book for a minute here. The, the flare book has always been a little bit of a subject of, of controversy because allegedly there was a, a first version of the book that a lot of people weren't happy with. And there was maybe an unrealistic deadline that had to be met in order to still pull the thing off and. Mark Madden is, is tapped and asked to sort of come in and back clean up. What do you remember about the book that almost was of the Rick well, Flair autobiography? I, and again, I don't remember specifically it, because it was the overall problem with the books. In my opinion was that a, they would bring in different people to try and get the voice. And I think that a lot of times those that were in charge of it on the marketing end and, and whatever end it was that was getting these folks were looking, just get the book done, just get it done. And there was a, there was a problem when you would read it that it didn't fit and it didn't, it didn't again, finding that character's voice that is so hard to do. Um, and, and a lot of them, if, you read their books and you know them. First of all, you know what's bullshit, what's not. Second of all, you if you get lost in it, Dusty's book was full of shit. However, it sounded like Dusty. Right. It was, I enjoyed the fuck out of it. Uh, Terry Funk's book, another one. You know, Mick Foley's book. You, you, it, 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 it sounded like them because the author, Mick Foley, he knew Mick Foley. Um, but the author was able to find the voice of Terry Funk and of Dusty Rhodes and and that made it easier to read and easier to feel. And we were having a tough time finding authors that knew the voices of these talent. And what we were doing was having the talent sit with them for a while, tell them stories, give them the history, work with them, proofread it. Some guys were more involved than others. And I don't know if this was the case with Rick, but as you can imagine, I'm sure that, that Rick probably didn't sit there and want to read every single word of the book and approve it. So it, it just was a, pro, it's a process and it's a painstaking process that not everybody just embraces. Well, something that was being embraced is Jeff Hardy and TNA. I can't believe that this actually happened. Uh, because it felt like Jeff Hardy was a lifer with WWE, but he winds up signing in July of 2004. Were you surprised when that happened? I mean, did you sort of expect that he would be back in WWE and, and then maybe a little taken aback when he winds up in TNA instead? I was surprised because I felt that Jeff, as you said, I felt that Jeff had a home in WWE and no matter what issues or, or what 
there was on the outside that Jeff would always find his way back and not go somewhere else. But that wasn't the case. And at the time, it was a little shocking for me to sit there and go, holy shit, I really didn't see that one coming. That's one you didn't see. There were ones you did see. That one I didn't see. Well, let's uh, let's talk about somebody else who's going to be making their way out. Uh, Rikishi. Uh, this is coming from a Wake Hill report in mid-July. Rikishi was recently released following months of inactivity. He had heat with the office for taking what they considered to be an extraordinary amount of time off to recover from an injury, and he sealed his own fate recently when he worked an indie show for a family member, Afa, without telling the office. He'd been under contract to WWE since 1991 making him one of the longest tenured wrestlers on the roster. Rikishi has not been given permission to use his gimmick outside of WWE. So he plans to use the name Fatu on the indie scene, but he may have to make several cosmetic changes if he decides to work for TNA. And there's some speculation that WWE might legally challenge whether or not he can have his hair dyed, wear similar ring gear, or even perform the stink face. Since all of those attributes belong to a WWE created character and indie promoters who tried to book Rikishi are saying he's asking for a high booking fee that many have found to be too expensive. And I feel like this is uh, pretty common when somebody gets released, they're quote unquote, fresh off TV. Even if they weren't really on TV with WWE lately, they're fresh off a WWE run. So they feel like they can command a higher price. And then as you may imagine, eventually that price comes down to be a little more in reason let's work backwards here you know did did you remember there being a situation where the name isn't really what wwe wants to protect it's the actual presentation it seems like perhaps a gold dust perhaps a rikishi there are probably others where you just knew uh i don't know if that's gonna fly yeah, no, because Rikishi, when you go back and look at the gimmick and look at what we had done with Fatu over the years, the Sultan, different things that we have tried with Rikishi, Rikishi was 100% created from, from the blonde hair to the outfit. Everything about that was something that we had created to try and change up the presentation as much as we could to get it away from the Fatu presentation that audience had been used to at this point. So that wasn't something, you know, look, your IP, you have to protect and you have to be able to go out and say, no, this is mine. And we developed it and we have to protect it. And that was one we were going to fight for because uh, that's, you know, Kane, different guys like that, that, that we created and that IP, you spend a lot of time investing in it and that wasn't going to happen. Take me back to when you guys first hear, I guess, let me ask this. Were there rumblings to the best of your recollection when, when he's in recovery and, and people say, Hey, what about Rikishi at TV this next week? I got an idea. And then somebody pipes up and says, nah, he's still fucking hurt. And then somebody else says, well, when's he going to be in? Does that become like, fuck, who knows? And you almost sort of as a writing team become frustrated and that just, you know, makes its way through the office or how does that come to be where, where the frustration starts to set in when someone's out too long? Well, it's double-edged sword out of sight, out of mind. So when you are given a time frame, and, and you've got lists where you can look at, okay, juniors out, 
here's his projected time to return. So you get to that time. Now you want to plan. You want to think of a way to bring him back. You want to think of a way, a story for him. And you start thinking that way, thinking that, okay, well, they should be back in June or July, what have you. And you get there and it's like, oh, he hasn't got clearance from doctor yet. And he hasn't gone in, he hasn't done his tests or he hasn't done this and he hasn't done that. And then you hear that he's working, (laughs) he's working shows. So he's, he's okay. He's okay enough to go and work shows, but he's not okay enough to go and get clearance. So that was the issue. And the issue became, why are we, okay, if that's the case, why are we even thinking about anything for him if he's not going to do on his side what needs to be done to come back and get on TV? And that was the challenging part. Um, I don't know what was going on with Rikishi during that time, but uh, here was a hell of an act, man, and a hell of a talent that we wanted to use. (laughs) We wanted to have him back on TV. And for whatever reason, he wasn't helping that cause by doing what he needed to do on his side to make that return. When you find out that he works an indie show, who makes the decision? Fuck this. He's out. I think it probably Jr. at the time. Cause I was so far removed and I was back living in Houston at that point. So that was probably Jr. or Johnny in talent relations. How does something like that, that make its way back? I mean, I hate to use the word, but are, are there office stooges sort of just scouring the internet to see what's going on and saying, Hey, uh, maybe you need to look at this. How are you stooging something that's all over the, that's all over the place. It's, it just was a fact that <laughs> if you're, you know, first of all, we have people out all the time that are looking for talent all over the country and shit. And you hear of, Hey, Rikishi's working a show. Well, that gets back. It's sure. That's just, a, that was just a fact. Something else interesting happened around this same time. WWE puts out a press release announcing their video on demand service. This is way before the WWE network, but it is their first foray into the digital cable realm. And the campaign is illustrating how WWE 24 seven will quote, put a lifetime of heroes to work for you. And this is a, the WWE 24 seven is the name. And of course they're trying to take advantage of this huge video library, which I think in the press release, they're saying it's more than 75,000 hours of programming, the largest of its kind in the world. But way, way, way ahead of the network. Behind the scenes, where was Vince sort of thinking this thing would land? Well, you know, it's 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 interesting because to me, this is, and I'm sure I've told the story here before about the Ring Magazine in like 1932, where there was someone who predicted essentially pay per view for boxing and wrestling. And the way that they worded it was there would be a a time in our life. Now, this 1932, in a boxing and wrestling magazine, there would be a time in our life that a championship prize fight could take place in New York City, Tokyo, Japan, uh, London, England, Munich, Germany. And you would be able to watch this fight wherever you are in the world live while it was taking place. 
And as time went on, I remember reading that when I was 14 years old doing research for Paul Bosch's book. And I said to Paul, I said, wow, this guy predicted closed circuit television. Years later, realized this guy had actually predicted pay-per-view before television was on everybody's living room. So the network, this was in, in, in my, my viewpoint, when I'm looking at it going, holy shit, this is the network. We, we are on all these cable systems all over the country and it was on demand. So you could join 24 seven WWE 24 seven. And then I think there'd be like five to 10 different things that you could select every week, new things to go back. And you had a menu and go in and select what you wanted to watch. This was the precursor to the network. And that's how it was a way to monetize and utilize all the hours of footage that we had for all those years. And this was before, you know, they were going out and, and getting a lot of the footage from the different territories all over the country, the AWA stuff. And, and that's when these deals started to be made. Let's talk about, uh, CNBC. Wade Keller says that, uh, they've done a feature story on Christopher Nowinski. Uh, the show of course is called the capital report and, uh, it's doing a feature on alternative media coverage on the upcoming national democratic convention in Boston. And the commentators interview Nowitzki, who says that the WWE would treat the convention as a serious event and would cover the important issues. And he mentioned the SmackDown your vote campaign and that he would be writing a column on WWE.com with convention coverage. And he complains about the alternative media coverage, treating the young male voters as children with more attention given to the type of, uh, underwear or computer used by the candidates than real issues. Uh, 34 legislators, from 21 States have followed the footsteps here of John Kerry and George Bush in committing to respond to the SmackDown your vote policy questionnaire from WWE. Lots to talk about here. First of all. We haven't talked a lot about Chris Nowinski on this show, and he's gone on to do some great things with, uh, learning what we now know about CTE and concussions and head trauma, but he's probably maybe at that time, one of the most well-suited folks to, to speak about something like this. And I mean, he's at your disposal. When did you guys realize, man, we should just send Nowinski for stuff like this. Well, there were actually quite a few people, uh, from Nowinski to Layfield, Ivory. Um, there were, there were a few more that were very political and that really enjoyed that side of the news, if you will. So the, all the political camps, they're looking at the audience of WWE. That was, that was their audience that was not going out. And voting. So you take the stars that these college kids are watching and that they're looking up to at this time. Um, they both sides came and, and really wanted to recruit WWE to endorse them. And Vince not wanting to get into endorsing one way or another at that time in our life. And, and you know, worst thing you can do, man, is 
dabble in politics, in my opinion, but is what it is. But the thing became, hey, smack down your vote. Be heard. At least if you've got something to say, you want to have anything to bitch about in the future, then at least go out and vote. That was the message that we were trying to convey, and that was helping both sides. We covered both sides fairly and just went and covered it so that that college kid that loves WWE, they see Chris Nowinski or JBL or Ivory or whoever else it is out there. It's like they recognize them and they're going to listen to what they have to say. And they're not endorsing anyone or any one party or the other. They're just telling you that, hey, pay attention. Here's what this side's saying. Here's what that side's saying. Get out and vote. Make a difference. That was the message behind it. And Nowinski being a Harvard graduate, Nowinski good-looking kid, looks great in a suit, um, very well-spoken, but he he had a presence, and, and he studied, and he knew his shit. Did Linda McMahon have eyes on politics at this point, do you think? You know, I think anybody that's ever run for any office has eyes on politics, so I would imagine she did, but it wasn't anything that was ever talked about, at least not with me. So I, I didn't know because it, it was always, I was of the mindset of take care, you know, you, you keep your politics private and take care of both sides, have friends on both sides so that if you need somebody, you've got it taken care of. But whatever your beliefs are, that, you know, that kind of shit I like to keep private. I still believe there should be privacy in this world in some things. Did you have any concerns when WWE started to sort of venture into the political realm, because it does feel like something that you could have safely stayed away from why the need to push forward. If it wasn't something that, you know, the chairman or his wife were, were interested in personally. Well, because it is, well, because first of all, it is a good message and it is in the middle by telling people get out and vote. You have the right to vote in this country and you have the right to choose who you want to represent you. So go out and do it. If you don't do it, then you're to blame. Don't you have no say after the fact, but you, you, we actually do have a say in this country. So that is something that Vince and Linda both strongly believed in, in general, doesn't matter Republican or Democrat, just go out and vote, make your voice heard. And that was a message he believed in. So we did it. Uh, let's talk about Eddie Guerrero. He's going to be out of action for several weeks. He's got uh, a tear of his hamstring. Of course, he's, he's on track for a big match here with Kurt angle, but he's been pulled from all the house shows until he's fully recovered. Uh, he's been asked to rest at at least two weeks, maybe a little longer, but of course, no doubt he's, he's going to wrestle Kurt angle at SummerSlam. A lot of people probably feel like in this era, Eddie Guerrero needed to take some time off. Uh, it's even written here by Wade Keller, uh, friends of Guerrero say he was driving himself nuts with second guessing how things were going and whether he was doing a good enough job as champion. And it really added to his anxiety issues lately. So WWE believed the time off should do him more good than just physically. And Guerrero was said to be very upset, but he was asked to lose the title. He's not making an issue of it in the locker room, but he feels like he's being blamed for the lack of success that SmackDown had through his title reign. And someone told Wade, 
Eddie's just paranoid of his own shadow. I feel sorry for him. He will always worry. That's just the way he is. I love him, but he is a little manic depressive. Would you categorize that as, as a true statement about Eddie? Because we've all heard that he took this very, very seriously. He thought it was a great responsibility and it is. Uh, but when it didn't go, you know, when he wasn't the second coming of stone cold, Steve Austin, he, he may have at the box office, he may have been a little disappointed. I do. I disagree with that because Eddie knew what his job was and Eddie's job. Eddie was coming in at a very difficult time and Eddie did very well at the box office and Eddie actually had, had turned some things around when you, you go back and look at it from where it was and Eddie was used without Eddie Guerrero. There would be no JBL. Because Eddie took that as his project. I'm going to get this guy over that we tried a lot of different gimmicks with. The APA was over. That shit was over good. But here now, John, as a singles, can he be an attraction? And Eddie looked at it as a challenge. And Eddie looked at it as, yeah, I'll make him an attraction. I'll get that son of a bitch over bigger than he's ever been. And bigger than anybody could imagine. Now, to be clear, That's what Bruce, Eddie did. I, I'm not, I'm not asking, do you think he did a good job? I'm asking, do you think that Eddie had given himself some anxiety issues because he was concerned he wasn't doing a very good job. Eddie would give himself anxiety if he had, if his sleeves were too long on his shirt. Okay. <laughs> um, Eddie would overthink a lot of different things and Eddie might've felt if, if anything, Feedback from to me from Eddie directly was Eddie hated being hurt. Eddie wanted to work through injuries. Eddie didn't want to go home. That was Eddie's downfall. Eddie's downfall was, you know, no, I'm fine. I can go. No, Eddie, you're hurt. You need to recuperate. You need to stay home. And you know what? Probably being off TV for a little bit of time could help all of us in the long run. Um, and that, is something that he's going to go, Oh shit. Now that's, uh, you can second guess that till the cows come home from the standpoint of, Oh shit. They don't want me at TV. They don't need me. I I'm a failure. They, they don't want me. No, that wasn't the case. And I can see Eddie working himself up into that, but at the same time, he, he also appreciated it and he knew what the best thing in the long run was for him. Uh, do you think he was upset that he was asked to lose the title? I know we'll talk about that another time, but you know, he's, he's probably elated to beat Brock Lesnar, be the world champion. You know, we know how important that is to Eddie and, and most wrestlers, but here when, when he loses it, is it just as devastating? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, it was probably more the other way that Eddie felt he was making lay layfield. Let's uh, talk about uh, something new you guys were trying. WB.com is auctioning off items that Eddie Guerrero stole from Kurt Angle, like a trophy, his cast, and even his wheelchair. And of course, you guys were doing all of this for charity, I'm sure. But who first came up with the idea of, hey, man, let's give fans an opportunity to own some of this screen used stuff? In this era, you guys started to do that quite a bit. Well, hell shit. That goes back to the character I was going to do with DT, DTK, 
uh, Enterprises, Doink the Clown Enterprises, and we were going to do the auction site, auctioning off a lot of the hardcore items that were used in matches and ring-used chairs and different things like that. So this was another another case where we utilized that a little bit more and big things that we had as part of the television show, get guys to sign them and auction them off. And it was just another revenue stream. Wade Keller would also report this and I can't wait to get your opinion on it. Eric Bischoff is producing an event called Sturgis 2004 at full throttle on pay-per-view. The in demand website states, quote, get ready to experience the loudest hottest, sexiest motorcycle event on the planet, uncensored and untamed as half a million riders soar into surge South Dakota for a full throttle celebration of life, liberty, and the pursuit of hog happiness. See what really goes on at this legendary rally. I think most everybody listening to this remembers hog wild and road wild the WCW pay-per-views, but even three years after WCW goes down in 2004, Eric Bischoff loves him some Sturgis. Uh, you just stole my lot. I was just going to say, Eric <laughs> Bischoff loves him some motorcycles and you have loves his, he loves him some Sturgises. Yeah, I don't know why he, he loved that shit so much, but he, he had to, to go back to it. 96, 97, 98, 99. And then five years later, fuck the wrestling. Let's just get the, the, the bikinis <laughs> on the hogs. That's all we need. <laughs> Oh shit. Yeah. I I actually offered to come and help Eric with this. And I, um, I took my offer back, frankly, because I started thinking about, do I really want to fucking go to Sturgis during Sturgis? Um, uh, yeah. And I, a friend of mine went, one of my neighbors went, and saw Eric and saw the whole thing was part of the pay-per-view, but Eric wanted to do this big rock concert and just produce a pay-per-view that brought people to Sturgis thinking that I I think that those that are interested in Sturgis are at Sturgis for that week. Not, not at home watching on TV. Yeah. They're not the, they're they're not not the ones sitting there going, well, honey, what's all pay-per-view night? Well, look, there's road wild Sturgis. Let's see what's happening. Like, I'm not saying this to be funny, but like, I I don't mean this to sound ugly, but what the fuck did they do? Like there's a camera of people walking around drinking beer, revving their motorcycle. I mean, that's it. Well, okay. I asked the same question and, and the big, the big part of it was, uh, a concert. I forget the name of the band, but it wasn't a big name band. Gotcha. Um, the miss Sturgis or miss road wild contest. Okay. Okay. So the finals would would be live on pay-per-view, but then they would do things like, and I, I, I'm going to catch so much shit from all the motorcycle riders out there. Cause the only thing that, that me and a motorcycle can do is probably kill me because I'm just too uncoordinated to ride a bike. I'm not that I can't do it. Um, not my, not my thing, but they like, they, they, they do this thing where they burn rubber and they rev their motors and who's got the loudest motor and who can burn and make the most smoke on their tires or shit like that. And I'm just, I'm listening to this going, okay. Um, 
if oh it's great man you're there and the the gasoline and then you, you can't even hear yourself think and there's so much smoke and shit and and you can't see a thing i said then how do you know who wins i don't get it um but that's what it was man it was it was bringing sturgis to everybody that wasn't there but I, again we'll go back to i think that the Everybody that was interested in being in Sturgis or seeing what was in Sturgis for that week was in Sturgis. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know this for sure. I'm just going to venture a guess. Is this the last Sturgis at full throttle pay-per-view? Yeah, this was the one, <laughs> this was the one and only, this was it. Yeah. I, you know, Eric, you know, Eric's going to be selling this shit now on DVD or something. Oh dude, we're going to pimp it so hard over on 83 weeks. I mean, come on, we're going to have autographed copies of the DVD, uh, when he, uh, well, maybe not for a long time now. Hey, you know what? Now that I'm thinking about it, maybe we could, there could, yeah, there, I could see in my crystal ball, August of 2020 SmackDown at Sturgis. Here we go. Uh, during this oh, time, God, no. <laughs> hey, <laughs> fucking damn. Goldberg. Oh, fuck that. that Goldberg that was a delayed and, tickle Goldberg and undertaker in the main event. One more time. It's going to be a hog off. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> oh yeah. And you went little shell nut there in the middle of it. How we've got our services there, but anyway, no, I did. Fuck. I was so tickled little- with that. <laughs> I'm not even mad at it. Just the idea of thinking about there being a goddamn smackdown at Sturgis tickles me. <sighs> okay. During this never time, say never, please. Can you help us say, do you have no fucking power up there, man? Don't do it. <laughs> Jesus. If you can do nothing else up there, don't let there be another goddamn wrestling show at Sturgis. Please. Uh, During this time, Brock Lesnar, who left WWE a few months prior, is at NFL training camp for the Minnesota Vikings, which is pretty remarkable when you think about it. Was Vince keeping tabs on this? I mean, it's. It's making the news, you know, especially the local news, but there is some national news too, because obviously he's a celebrity and, and he's really trying something sort of unorthodox. Was Vince keeping up? Uh, We all were because we were interested in, in whether he was going to succeed or not. And you look at it here, this is something which takes balls to walk away from the profession that you've been in for the last few years and into an unknown world in a lot of respects and, and to say, I'm going to go play professional football. Now I didn't play in college. Last time I played was in high school, but it's a decent high school football player. I'm going to go and I'm going to try out. And he actually made it through all the tryouts. He made it all the way to the damn practice team. So yeah, we're definitely looking at him and frankly, cheering him on, hoping that he does succeed so that you can say, Hey, former WWE superstar Brock Lesnar on the Minnesota Vikings. That would have been cool to have on there as well and to to have those bragging rights. But, um, yeah, everybody's looking to see what's going to happen. When he makes his first tackle, uh, it actually makes the news. This is just practice, but still, uh, the head coach, Mike Tice, would, would address this tackle and the fact that he lost his helmet and says he made his first tackle, so he got his first kiss. He grew up some. We were pleased. 
Uh, he's been working hard and I thought it was important for him to get a little taste today and see what it's like. And I'm sure his head was spinning some, but he was able to make a tackle and Lesnar explained saying, I more or less just fell into it, but that's how it goes. I was working hard and he addresses sort of the elephant in the room. I'm 27, which in this league, I'm not a young man after two and a half days of camp. I feel like I'm 60 years old when I woke up this morning and being called a rookie, he commented, I wouldn't really call myself a rookie. I'm more like a water boy right now, which is pretty cool that, that he's willing to sort of acknowledge. It's also worth mentioning that even if he makes the final roster here, it's going to be the league minimum of $230,000, which don't get me wrong is a great salary, but way, way, way less than he had been making with WWE. Fair to say. Yeah, definitely. And I don't think that, you know, the funny thing about it is, is when you look back, I think that there is a tendency for people to want other people to fail. So when, when there's that buzz, the guys like, Oh, he'll never make it. God, this is ridiculous. And you know, then there's those of us, you're rooting for him for that reason. It's like, I, I, you know what? I'd like him to make it. I'd like him to make it because he's one of us, (laughs) you know, he was our guy. So you're cheering for him to be successful. Just like the guys that go to Hollywood, you don't want to fucking sit here and talk about, Oh God damn, that movie sucked. You want it to be a blockbuster, make more money than, you know, any, anybody else because it reflects back on what we do. So we were rooting for him, but keeping a close eye on it. And it was a long shot, man, being 27 years old and not playing since he was in high school, but he had the balls to go out and do it and get in there and knock heads with the motherfuckers. It's worth mentioning that just a couple years prior to this SummerSlam, it's really his crowning moment where he has that match with the rock and becomes the world champion. We just recently covered that on our rock episode, but that was just a couple years prior to this. And now two years later, uh, on August 14th, he's making his NFL debut. It's a preseason game against the Arizona Cardinals. And he's going to come into the game early in the second quarter on the kickoff team, charge down the field and make contact with a blocker from the Cardinals and He's on the kickoff team a couple other times and he lines up on the field goal blocking team late in the first half and early in the second half. He's on the D line for the first time in the fourth quarter. And he looked okay against the third stringers for the Cardinals. He doesn't record any sacks or anything like that, but the television crew is putting him over very, very hard saying that he's uh, first on last off, very enthusiastic, very coachable and, and holding his own. And, um, He's also going to announce at training camp that he's now engaged to Sable, which I don't think a lot of people probably saw coming. If you haven't heard, uh, Mark Merrow's story, uh, about finding out that Brock Lesnar and Sable were together, it is one of the more classic lines and I'm sure I'm going to butcher it. And of course, when Merrow thinks that Sable's perhaps moved on, you know, their relationships on the rocks and maybe she's moved on. Uh, he's fighting mad, former golden gloves boxer himself. And he's ready to kick this guy's ass, whoever he is, wherever he is. And then he finds out it's Brock Lesnar. And he explains that he very quickly learned the power of forgiveness, uh, which is one of the funnier lines ever. Did, were you guys shocked that, uh, Sable wound up with, with Brock Lesnar? No, I mean, I'm not shocked one way or another. It- 
to people, you know, uh, you have to say God makes them and pairs them. So it's, they fell in love. They did their thing. More power to them. Wade Keller reported something else interesting around this time. Believe it or not, a name we haven't heard around for a long, long time. Bruno San Martino attended last week's raw show at the request of Vince McMahon. Now, if you're not really familiar, these guys weren't exactly on good terms for at least a couple of decades. And when the WWF had some problems in the eighties and early nineties, Bruno was very, very outspoken, uh, not just on things like uh, Larry King live, but the torch talk and things like that. So insider trades and man mainstream San Martino was really very critical of Vince McMahon. And here he's invited to raw. Do you remember that being discussed? And were you shocked that Vince is sort of trying to extend an olive branch? Oh, it wasn't the first time Vince had extended an olive branch to Bruno. I think it was just, and I forget what it was, but there was some, whether it was Kurt or somebody uh, might've even been Jerry McDivitt, who's the attorney in, in Pittsburgh. But someone had run into Bruno, and, and there was some kind of mutual uh, middleman that said, you know, Bruno, yeah, Vince has tried many times. We were in Pittsburgh. Everything's there. Come on down say hello. And Vince had, had offered that many times to Bruno, and it extended the olive branch several times uh, to Bruno. And Bruno just wasn't interested. Bruno had his beliefs. Man, he was firmly implanted in that and had no desire whatsoever to <laughs> grab that olive branch and, and reciprocate. So this was just another one that you thought would, would come and go. But Bruno actually came out, and, and they were able to shake hands and at least talk, which was a big step. Let's, uh, let's dig a little deeper, because allegedly the reason McMahon wants to sort of mend fences with Bruno is because he wants to legitimize quote unquote, the WWE hall of fame. And he wants Bruno to accept this. And of course we know that's not going to happen for nearly 10 years, uh, quite a while, but he also wants Bruno to participate in some interviews and narration for the new WWE 24 seven project. And it's pointed out in the torch that Bruno doesn't really keep up with wrestling. He was hoping that Kurt angle a local Pittsburgh citizen and, and hometown boy was going to be in the main event, but he's told, no, he's not on raw. He's actually on SmackDown. And when he's told that the main event is going to be triple H and Chris Benoit, Bruno has no idea who triple H is and says he's not a fan of Iron Man matches. So he leaves early, which I don't know, just fascinates me that he was that unplugged. Is that sort of common or would you classify that as uncommon for an old timer to sort of just totally disengage from wrestling completely. I think there's those that do and those that don't. So in Bruno's case, I think that Bruno had his views on the business and there was nothing that was going to change that. So Bruno had his mindset and he saw WWE for what he saw it as. And there was nothing, there was nothing else to it, but he had no idea who anybody was. I mean, it was the business had passed him by that much that he just didn't keep up with it, didn't care. And, you know, as far as legitimizing the, the Hall of Fame, the, the Hall of Fame didn't need Bruno, wanted Bruno, 
And I think that Bruno needed to be there. And from God, you know, I'll go back to the shit second or third hall of fame induction that we ever did when we were doing them in hotels and things like that. We had extended the invitation to Bruno wanting Bruno to be a part of the hall of fame. And it was Bruno's choice not to be a part of the hall of fame until he eventually came around to it. But I, I think that the hall of fame without Bruno was kind of empty and I'm, I'm so happy that he finally did come around because he does rightfully belong there. And it was just, you know, come on, Bruno. And it was a way to say, Hey, Bruno, we want to put all this stuff out here on you that we have. We'd, we want to show people what you did. We'd love for you to be a part of it. We'd love for you to, to come back home basically. And that's what Vince was looking for. It was all the above to bring Bruno back into the fold, bring him back into the family and for Bruno to feel good about it. And for finally, for people to see that had never been able to experience Bruno San Martino in the garden, working with superstar Billy Graham and shit like that. Um, he really wanted Bruno to be a part of that. Why? Um, why don't you think it worked out where Bruno came back here? <sighs> I just, I, I don't think Bruno was ready. It's as simple as that. I just think that when you reach a certain age, a couple of things happen. You, you dig in deeper and you hold on to your beliefs and nobody's going to change your mind. Or you say, fuck it, life's too short and let bygones be bygones and move on with your life and and just say people are people and everybody makes mistakes and we all fuck up. Some of us more than, more than others as I raise both my hands, um, move on and, and get over it because life really and truly is too short. And I'm, I, I was tickled when, when Bruno finally did, did come back. I wasn't even there. And I'm like, you know, good for him. Because it's it's what he should have done a long time ago, in my opinion. Well, I think uh, everybody knew that Bruno belonged in the Hall of Fame, and everyone knows the risks of drunk driving. You could get in a crash, people could get hurt or killed. But here are some surprising statistics about 29 people in the United States die every day in alcohol impaired vehicle crashes. That's one person every 50 minutes. Even though drunk driving fatalities have fallen by a third in the last three decades, drunk driving crashes still claim more than 10,000 lives each year. Drunk driving can have a big impact on your wallet too. You could get arrested and incur huge legal expenses. You could possibly even lose your job. So what can you do to prevent drunk driving? Plan a safe ride home before you start drinking, designate a sober driver or call a taxi. If someone, you know, has been drinking, take their keys and arrange for them to get a sober ride home. We all know the consequences of driving drunk, but one thing's for sure. You're wrong. If you think it's no big deal, drive sober or get pulled over. Don't drink and drive. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, uh, a hot topic. And I'm sure you have a strong opinion about this. Of course, I'm talking about the dress code that WWE initiated a month prior to this 
Uh, Wade Keller would write wrestlers and other WWE personnel are required to wear dress shoes, slacks, and a dress shirt to the matches every night. Coat and tie is optional. One insider says management's goal is to enhance the image of WWE to the outside world. And it's been a rule of some major league sports uh, leagues for decades as an attempt to class up the image of their athletes. Wrestlers had been showing up at arenas in track suits and tennis shoes or flip-flops, ratty looking pants and worn t-shirts, which management felt was embarrassing the company in front of fans and media. It had gotten pretty bad concedes one wrestler who says the policy shouldn't be seen as a big deal, even though only a few dozen fans see what they dress like on their way to the arena. Sure. It's a minor inconvenience says the wrestler It's less comfortable on flights and a hassle when changing after workouts at the gym, but it's no big deal. Wrestlers are making a big deal out of this. And it's just plain silly for guys making this good of money. Where did you land on it? Because I know that you're wearing the monkey suit every day, but before you went back, well, that was not the case for Mr. Pritchard's daily attire. Yeah, I'm a shorts and flip-flops guy, folks. And um in December, in January, in July, it don't matter. Shoes are not necessary. Yeah. But okay, but even for the last what, year and a half at the shows, uh, I started wearing suits just cuz it was easier. Yep. Facts. So, I mean, when you get old, you flip-flop. Um but during this time, you know, we had I think that it was I think it was overdone to the point of, you know, the sport coat, the uh, jacket, the tie, and the all that other shit. I just think that guys should dress neat, be presentable, and have a – be presentable. That's all. And especially at that time. Now, for me, presentable at that time was usually um, khakis of some kind. I always – I wore the same shoes like I wear now, Cole Haan uh, Nikes and I'd either wear a polo shirt or a Tommy Bahama short sleeve shirt. Didn't matter. I wear sweaters in the, in the winter, but I never wore a sport coat and man, I was pissed when we changed over. Cause see two things happened. I'll go back to when we got rid of the dress code during the attitude era. I had just spent like $4,000 on new suits and shirts and just a whole new wardrobe. $4,000 is a lot of money to go out and spend at one time for a bunch of monkey suits and shit. I hadn't even got the stuff back from the tailor when Vince proclaims, God damn it, we're attitude. No more dress code. Just be neat. I'm like, motherfucker. So now the flip happened. I had gotten rid of every suit I owned (laughs) and I didn't have any suits. And now all of a sudden it's like, got to wear a sport coat, got to wear a suit. I was like, fuck. So yeah, I was not in favor of it. I was, was not a happy camper about the new dress code. Who are the folks who were, who were embracing it? I'm talking about main roster. Who was like, oh man, I dig this. I can sort of. Strut that ass a little bit. It feels like we've heard that Batista was one of those guys. And uh, who was the other guy? That was a big guy. Um, Luther Reigns. He maybe liked it. I've seen a few guys who really, really enjoyed it, but I'm sure there were a few who just absolutely fucking hated it. But see, those were the guys that were already doing it though. 
those are the guys that were were dressed to the nines no matter what. You know, Ric Flair. Yeah, I've never seen Ric Flair not look like he was tailor-made. Best dressed man in the business, no matter what. And you know, th- those guys were going to do it anyway. So it, it, it was, um, got it. You know, Randy Orton, as a matter of fact, Randy was like, why can't I just wear nice jeans? And jeans were like on the X list. Uh, Randy didn't like it. And it was, I, I think that most, most of the guys just looked at it like, uh, kind of roll their eyes and okay, we'll do it. But there was nobody that was, yay, we have a dress code. Cause the guys that dressed, they, they were already doing it. So it might, yeah, I mean, I, I really think it came down to seeing the guys that were dressed that looked really good, like Batista and all those guys. It was like, God damn, they look sharp. And then somebody walks in behind them in shorts and flip-flops or a Tommy Bahama shirt and Nike shoes. Um, they go, God damn. <laughs> so I think it was a combination of a lot of things that got us to that point. Well, I mean, that's, that's like an old rule of thumb, right? Like dress for the job you want, something like that. Dress for the job you want, not the one you have. Well, and and how about this? If you're maybe looking for a new job, we can't recommend the grounds guys, a neighborly company. This episode is brought to you by them. And the grounds guys is looking for new owners to join their growing company. Could this be the perfect opportunity for you? Well, here's a couple questions. Are you driven? Do you have the heartbeat of an entrepreneur? Do you love to be outdoors? If you're currently running your own landscape business, or you think that a landscaping franchise could be your natural calling text G G B I Z O P P that's G G biz op to eight, seven, zero, zero, zero right now to learn more. Choosing to start your business with the grounds guys means setting yourself up for success by surrounding yourself with the best in business and the best at business. With the grounds guys, you'll be your own boss, pick your own territory, set your own hours and live a better quality of life, running a business that you can be proud of. You'll have access to the best resources to help you scale your landscape business to meet your personal and professional goals. And you'll go home every day with the satisfaction of helping your customers enhance and maintain the beauty of their outdoor spaces. As a grounds guy owner, you'll also be a part of the greater neighborly community of home service brands. Neighborly has empowered more than 3,700 entrepreneurs to achieve their dreams and goals through local business ownership. And no one knows the home service industry better than Neighborly. In fact, every year, nearly 1 million customers are proudly served by one of Neighborly's 22 award-winning brands, some of which include Mosquito Joe, Molly Maid, Glass Doctor, and Mr. Rooter. I just saw that AirServe is one of those brands, and, and they're at my house all the time. Uh, whether you're thinking about starting your own business or you're already running your own landscape business, text GG BizOp. That's GG BIZOPP to 87000 to learn more about how a Grounds Guys franchise can help you get where you want to go faster than going it alone. Again, text GG BIZOPP to 87000 to learn more about the neighborly brands that may be available in your area. And we thank them for sponsoring the podcast. Let's get to SummerSlam. Rob Van Dam gets a win over Renee Dupree on Sunday Night Heat. Seems a little weird that Rob Van Dam's on Sunday Night Heat. Uh, Spike, Devon, and Bubba Ray Dudley 
are going to be in a six man taking on Ray Mysterio, Paul London, and Billy Kidman. London's going to sell the uh, first half of the match. Then they start the hot tags chaos ensues. And we wrap things up with a 3d on Kidman. It gets a star and a half. Uh, what'd you think of this opening match here on SummerSlam? You know, I, it was what it was. I, I tell you one thing that I, I do kind of miss and it made me remember was the tag team of Paul London and Brian Kendrick, which I don't think anybody in a million years thought that they would have been anything. And to me, were one of the best tag teams I've ever seen. And that's what, that's what it just reminded. It put me back there immediately when you look at this and go, Oh, what the hell? Um, I thought it was okay, but it was just rushed and chaos is the best word to describe it. I'm fascinated when you said, I don't think anybody in a million years thought this was going to be anything. Well, why is that? Because they weren't big single stars. Maybe the office was down on their personalities or work habits or why did no one in a million years see it? Because they, because they weren't big in stature. Number one, second of all, I don't think that in the work that they had done prior that you got to see a lot of their personalities. And once you get to know both of them over the top personalities and a love for the business and just their personalities make up for their lack of size, but their work was tremendous. And again, from the outside looking in and what they had exposed to people up until that point. Yeah, I think you'd look at him. Hey, you know, they're pretty good, uh, good guys to have a match with a you know, solid hand. But t- to me, when we did the tag team with them and actually did something with them, I thought, wow, I thought they were great. Next up, we've got Kane and Matt Hardy, and this has been a little bit of a hot issue leading into this match. Uh, Wade would say it was too short. He only gave it one star. They go six minutes and five seconds. Lita throws the ringside bell into the ring. Hardy hits Kane with it. Kane gets his leg on the middle rope to break the count. Kane stops a Hardy superplex, choke slams him off the top down to the mat, and Kane scores the pin. Lita looks stunned. And they fit a lot of story here into six minutes. Uh, but the reason that it's cut short is because Matt's hurt. He's got a torn MCL in his left leg and a very badly torn ACL. Chat me up though about the, uh, the backstory of how we got here, because what happens the next night on raw is kind of interesting. Well, I, you know, the, the story was going to lead to, a, a romance story of sorts between Kane and Lita. And unfortunately along the way, Matt had this injury and it, it just kind of had to, to Peter out from there. But again, you, you watch it back and it, for what it was, for what you had there, they got the most of what they had. So, it, and go ahead. It's a pre-match stipulation here. If you don't remember this, if if Matt Hardy loses, Lita has to marry Kane. So, Matt Hardy loses. <laughs> now Lita has to marry Kane. Uh, Isn't that how everybody gets married? I mean, I know that's what happened at my house. It was loser leaves town, brother. Yeah. You had that one match and yeah. Anyway, she put me over roll tide. There you go. So the next night on raw, 
Coach tries to get a comment from Lita, <laughs> but she walks into her locker room where Trish, Gail Kim, Jazz, and Molly Holly all surprise her with a bridal shower. They present her with condoms, birth control, and an ugly picture of what the baby may look like. And oh yeah, a vibrator. And of course, Lita stormed off. That's a good thing that you guys aren't going lowbrow with your programming. And really you never have. How is that lowbrow? No, I said, it's good that you're not. Cause that was we not lowbrow. But you, you did it with an insinuation in your voice. Whoa, 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 whoa. Are you telling me that a woman being forced to marry a demon from hell <laughs> and being given a surprise bridal shower <laughs> where they give her condoms and vibrators is okay, first is, of all, condoms, safe sex. So I'm, I'm with message. it. Birth control, Birth control pill, pills, and the one of unwanted pregnancies, and a vibrator. There's nothing wrong. Listen, vibrators. Sometimes it. you got that that spot in, in the back of your back that you can't just reach. You need a little extra help. And ugly is that's all in the eye of the beholder. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is why Jim Cornette calls my broadcast partner the Artful Dodger. Uh, Motherfucker, fuck you. Thank you for that. Uh, Next up, Todd Grisham is going to interview Randy Orton and John Cena. (laughs) Easy for me to say. John Cena (laughs) steps in and cuts a promo on Randy. And that sets up our next match, which is John Cena and Booker T. And they're doing a best of five series. Uh, Yeah, this is for the U.S. title, which Booker T was holding at this time. Of course, Cena is going to win the series three to two with the last match taking place at no mercy. And with the series win, of course, Cena is now the United States champion. Chat me up though. Booker T had a best of seven with Chris Benoit and WCW, and now he's doing a best of five with John Cena. Is this just a way to sort of showcase some wrestling skills, try something different, a retread of something we've done before? Why does this make sense? A best of five series. Well, it was to be able to get John in the ring and have him work with someone that could get the best out of him. Um, John at this point was still kind of in his clumsy stage. Don't know if he ever got out of it, but this was to, to just show people that, Hey, he can work. And Booker was the guy to get the most out of him. So Booker had done the stuff with Benoit before in WCW and it was Booker's idea to say, Hey, what if we, we did this. And let me get him over. Let me get some good matches with him. Once we get into a rhythm and we get to, comfortable with each other, we'll, we'll get him ready to go. And and this was during the time that we had to build stars. We had, we didn't have the Stone Colds, the Rocks, and all that right now. We had to build new guys, and we had to get somebody into that spotlight. So this was pedal to the metal on John Cena. You know, you said, uh, in this clumsy phase, I, I don't really consider Cena clumsy. It's probably more unorthodox, right? I mean, it is unorthodox. I, I used to like to call it clumsy, but it is unorthodox. He's just different. Yeah. Like the, the way he moves in the ring, it's not as fluid as some of the other guys, but the result it's still there. Like he, yes. he's, he's, he's making it happen. It's just not quote unquote pretty. It's not Barry Windham doing it in 1986. It's a different thing. Exactly. Uh, clumsy. Next up, clumsy. There we go. Hey, if you're listening, John, fuck you. Bruce says you're clumsy. Uh, probably not listening though. Uh, raw GM. Oh, Eric- he listens. <laughs> well, I'm going to get trust, a different tr- kind tr- of tr- trust. Then. Trust me. He listens and other, yeah. Love you, John. 
So you're going to back up on the clumsy thing now? Cause he may stretch you. He could do it. it. You know what? This is one of my favorite John Cena things. I'm standing in the hallway one day. He comes by and just punches me in the chest against the wall. And he says, that's just to let you know I can. <laughs> what the fuck did I do to you? Um, is this since you've been back or is this back in the day? No, no, no. This was back in the day. I was going to say, this would be great if everybody was like, and fuck you for 99. Bam. <laughs> <laughs> I hated oh, that God. shit. No five. Wham. Yeah. All right. Here no. we go. The raw GM, Eric Bischoff, which doesn't sound right. Uh, tells the SmackDown GM, Teddy long, which also doesn't sound right. Uh, that SmackDown GMs don't last. Mm. Boy, that's prophetic. So he figures he'll be gone next time they do a joint pay-per-view and long said if Bischoff gets rid of Eugene, he'll be glad to sign him to SmackDown. Of course, we know Eugene's going to have a match later today on this same show, which I can't believe is a thing. Next up though, we've got, uh, maybe the oddest three way for the intercontinental title ever. They go eight minutes and 16 seconds. And when I say they, how about this? It's edge, Chris Jericho and Batista. The crowd is booing edge throughout the match, which is the story of the match. Of course they're in, uh, Toronto, but Toronto. Yeah. Uh, edge gives Jericho a spear after Jericho got sidetracked by drop kicking Batista and Lawler says they're in bizarro world because of this strange crowd reaction. It gets a star in three quarters. And with this win, I believe edge becomes only the second intercontinental champion to retain the title at SummerSlam. The only other one was. Sean Michaels, who defeated Razor Ramon at uh, SummerSlam 95 in a ladder match. So usually that belt's flip-flopping here, but that's not the case. And what a random group of guys. I mean, this feels like, you know, knowing what we know now, this is a world title three-way, but Batista, Jericho, Edge, talk about a Styles clash, huh? Huh. A little bit, yeah. And definitely it's another spot that we're in where all three guys, you're attempting to move up on the car and you're attempting to move these guys into that spot where they can be top drawing hands. Edge wasn't there yet. And you had, you know, you had to get everybody moved up a little bit and, and moved into that spot. So it was, but it was weird, you know, all night long, this audience was a little bit weird though. Um, we thought again, you go in to Canada. We thought that, Edge, being from Toronto, that they would cheer the fuck out of him. Jericho, being from Winnipeg, not so much. And again, we just thought Edge would be the babyface, and it was you had to point it out. So it was it was a little weird. It was a little strange. Just when you think you got it all figured out, they every time they'll throw you a swerve. Next up, we got a 13 minute and 36 second match between Kurt Angle and Eddie Guerrero. And if that gets your interest, it should two of the very best that ever did it. Uh, three stars is what Wade Keller would give it. He said it was a thrall, a goddamn, a strong three-star match that was Matt based and focused on angle working over Guerrero's ankles. And he said it was a bit too one dimensional to rise above three stars, uh, but a good start to a 20 minute four-star match, but it ended maybe a little too soon for him. And, uh, there's supposed to be. Uh, a tap out win with an ankle lock. Uh, and that happens right after Guerrero has scored a near fall with a frog splash. So we see the finishes from both guys. Frog splash doesn't get it done. Ankle lock does. 
It's a rematch really of the WrestleMania 20 match. I still think I like the WrestleMania 20 match better. I don't know why that would be though. Do I like it better in your opinion? Because that was for the world title. That was at WrestleMania. It was the first time we'd seen it or did this one not click or was Eddie just hurt here? I think that you like the WrestleMania one better because it was the first time and it was new and it was such a beautiful story. However, to me, I thought this was a beautiful story. One dimensional working a body part and going in that that's just stupid to me. Uh, I thought they told a great story of getting to that body part and weakening it enough to where he can actually score the victory and the victory came out of nowhere. So I, to me, uh, 800 stars, Tokyo Dome, 9,000. As a reminder here, Guerrero lost the title to JBL in June. So a couple months prior to this, and then angle, the then SmackDown general manager actually cheats Guerrero and declares JBL the winner. And on the July 15th episode of SmackDown, JBL would beat Guerrero in a cage match. And towards the end of the match, El grand luchador would interfere. And he would give JBL enough time to escape the cage and win the match. And after the match ended, Guerrero attacks the luchador, pulls his mask off and Scooby-Doo. Wouldn't you know it? It's Kurt Angle. Kurt Angle was El Grande Luchador. Uh, El Grande Luchador. Say it like you did WrestleMania or Royal Rumble 97. El Grande Luchador. (laughs) No, you're like rolling R's and shit. Come on. El Grande Luchador. There you go. Thank you. I like, you're like my... My personal little voice box, you know, over on what happened when Tony has went out and got this awful gadget where he just presses buttons and there's like crowd applause and shit like that. I don't need that. I can just call spots and boom, you're there. El Grand Luchador. El Grand Luchador. That's the Alabama version. Oh yeah. Um, overall though, what do you think of their chemistry together? For whatever reason, as much as I enjoyed their work separately, I never thought Kurt Angle was one of Eddie Guerrero's best opponents. Not saying one of the best wrestlers he ever wrestled, but sometimes it just doesn't click. I think if I was to name like Kurt Angle's top five opponents or Eddie Guerrero's top five opponents, they wouldn't, they would not be on each other's list. They would be on mine. Yeah. Really? They, now they, they had, they had times where they clashed, but it felt real. And that's what I liked about it because there was an air of authenticity to it. And there was a realness to all their matches. There was a professional rivalry and there was a little bit of a shooter rivalry in there too. Cause Eddie was an amateur and Kurt Angle's the best in the world. So you always want to, you know, try your luck with the best. So, but to me, that's what made their matches so magical. Cause you felt that and, and it, and it gave a, a real air of authenticity. And that's, I think what you're feeling. I can't believe this is a real thing, but. The next match really is a feud that starts back on the May 17th episode of raw where during an in-ring segment with the rock, Eugene reveals that his favorite wrestler is triple H and, uh, yeah, it's because Eugene loves playing games and he is the game. And after that, triple H begins to befriend Eugene, even making him an honorary member of evolution. And of course, later it's revealed that triple H is just utilizing Eugene to help him win back the world title from Chris Benoit and at vengeance during the triple H Benoit match, Eugene inadvertently hit triple H with a steel cane or a steel chair, costing him the match and the championship. And the following night on raw triple H beat up Eugene in the ring 
And on the July 26th episode of raw, Eugene would return to raw and cost triple H his rematch with Benoit in the Iron Man match. And that led to triple H demanding a match with Eugene at SummerSlam, which the raw general manager, Eric Bischoff makes, oh man, one of the biggest stars in the history of the business, whether you like him or not, triple H and at SummerSlam 03. He's in the main event for an elimination chamber with guys like Goldberg, Chris Jericho, Kevin Nash, Randy Orton, Shawn Michaels. And at SummerSlam 02, he's taken on a returning Shawn Michaels in an unsanctioned street fight. But here in 2004, he's wrestling fucking Eugene. Okay, and you'd be bitching if he was in the main event. Well, Triple H is in the main event year before, year before that, year before that. You'd be bitching if he was in the main event. Feel better? No. My tummy hurts a little bit. (laughs) Triple H beats you. You know what? I mean, this was a hell of a story, but it was a hell of a story that had gone on for a while in raw and, but, and I'll even go back and, and say that I believe story will be the title every time. Anyway, so. I, I'm not arguing that. Listen, I'm for the story, but God damn triple H and Eugene on pay-per-view. This is a raw main event at best. Now it's on fucking pay-per-view. Yeah. Well, they go 14 minutes and seven seconds. Is that a surprise? Triple H had the longest match on the show so far. Probably not two and three quarter stars. Surprise beats his ass with a pedigree. Uh, William Regal's there. Ric Flair's there. Lots of interference. Uh, Regal is going to console a pouting Eugene as Hunter drags an unconscious Flair to the back by his feet. It's a fun match. Two and three quarter stars. What'd you think? Well, again, you know, the story kind of took it. And when you look at the two guys involved and behind it with, with Triple H and with Eugene, Nick Densmore. Uh, two great workers, and, and I thought that again, Dinsmore did that Eugene gimmick tremendously, and brought now, him to life. Let's mention that it's serious business. You should go watch this because I think a lot of people just sort of look back at Eugene and say, "Oh," and don't get me wrong, I'm with it. But that's what Nick Dinsmore was asked to do, and man, when he like uh, flips off Triple H in this match, it gets a huge pop. He's imitating other people's finisher, including doing the Hulk Hogan leg drop and, and going for the, the pin right away. There's some really fun stuff that Nick Dinsmore was able to do here. Of course, the Eugene character probably didn't age that well. Uh, maybe not the best idea, but it is a big opportunity for the man behind the character, Nick Dinsmore, uh, uh, against a really top star. So if you really want to see what this Eugene character was able to do and the man who performed as that character this is a fine match to go see but still it is a little like oh man i mean like at this point you're not asking me to pay 9.99 and i get to see everything that ever happened you're asking me to come out of pocket 30 or 35 dollars fuck there ain't no way eugene's winning this he's just gonna get squashed i thought he was gonna win yeah i'm sure you did yeah well we all win with the next one the raw diva candidates beat the raw divas <laughs> in a quick pre-taped diva dodgeball game. Uh, the, uh, you want to hear about this one? I do. But before I do, I want to tell you this, the divas dodgeball match was actually the second highest rated match on the show in a WWE.com poll. 
It took 22% of the vote. The only thing that beat it was the main event with Randy Orton and Chris Benoit. So process that, even though these diva contests maybe were, uh, fans wanted to see it and we can probably guess why. Cause it was a shoot. The dodgeball was. Yeah. It was a shoot. We just let him go out and play dodgeball. It's hilarious. And our, the, the, the girls that got beat by the contestants were pissed. Fucking hilarious. Loved it. All righty. Yeah. Why not? Um, did, <laughs> I don't know what to say here. Did you produce that segment? Did anybody say, uh, if you can dodge a ball, you can, if you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball or. Hey, play dodgeball. Go. I didn't produce it. I watched it. I'm sure you did. I mean, this diva segment, I mean, I know we're at the tail end of what's acceptable here, but I mean, really, this is just another way to get T and a on the show. Is it not gorgeous women? Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. And, and listen, it. back then you said it, you said it in a lowbrow way. Oh no, I can't believe, you know what? That's not something we do here on the show. Everybody knows that this is a real classy show. We would never stoop to that level. Fuck no. Uh, but we need to take a break right now to tell you how to get your dick real, real hard. Guys, let's talk about sex. Remember the days when that rascal was so hard, even a cat couldn't scratch it. Well, now you can increase your dick performance and get that extra dick confidence. I'm talking about big dick energy. Listen up. Bluechew.com. That's blue like the color blue. You're going to lay the smack down on some cooter. You know what we're talking about. Blue Chew brings you the first chewable with the same FDA approved ingredients as both Viagra and Cialis. You know they work. Hell, they even work for Bruce. And you can take them anytime, day or night, even on a full stomach. And since they're chewable, they work up to twice as fast as a pill. So you can be ready whenever an opportunity arises. And Bruce, you were telling me you were laying the smack down all over Toronto. Tell us all about it. Conrad. Yes. Here's the deal. If you don't have time for doctor's visits, you don't want to sit there and go, you know, go to the pharmacy and the pharmacist is looking at it. It's like, ha ha. Can't get that dick hard, huh? Well, blue chew is the answer. Okay. And we should, I mean, it's, we it's should, just that simple. We should mention now, this isn't just for guys like Bruce who can't get their gimmick card. It's for any guy who wants extra function to enhance their performance in the bedroom. You know, you've heard in wrestling, people say, oh, he's on the gas. Get your dick on the gas, man. Blue Chew <laughs> is prescribed online and shipped straight to your door in a discreet package. So no more in-person doctor's visits, no more waiting in the pharmacy, no more awkwardness, just a lot of hard dick. And right now we've got a special deal for our listeners. Visit bluechew.com and get your first shipment for free. When you use our promo code wrestle, give her something to wrestle with a big old dong. Just pay $5 shipping one more time. That's B L U E C H E W.com. And our promo code is wrestle. You can try it for free. Blue chew is the better, cheaper, faster source. And we thank them for sponsoring this very fucking highbrow podcast. Yes. And use our promo code wrestle to get your damn dick hard. Pound it like that. <laughs> Blue Pound that good. motherfucker, then boom. <laughs> good two out of three It'll falls. Take a pound and keep on. Wait, no. 
pounding. Yeah. Yeah. Well, fuck it. Uh, next up. Blue Chew. Yes. Fuck it with Blue Chew. Use that promo, promo code, code wrestle. wrestle. There you go. That's, we just need t-shirts that just say promo code wrestle. <laughs> just, hey, fuck. Is there something you saw advertised on TV? You want to try it promo out? Promo code wrestle. <laughs> <laughs> I know we maybe didn't sponsor it. Fuck it. Just fuck try it. it. <laughs> try it. You might save some shit, bro. Just throw that shit in there. Never know. It's What's so, our promo code? Fucking wrestle. Get your dick hard with wrestle. Oh my God. Every now and again, this is fun with you. And today is one of those days. <laughs> oh shit. Next up JBL. With, or, <laughs> my eyes are water. Can't see. Well, hang on now. To be clear, blue chew does not cause blindness. Bruce couldn't <laughs> no, see shit before. <laughs> the only time Bruce can't see when he's taking blue chew is when his dick is in the way of the TV. That's it. That's Hey, well, okay. All right. Let's move along. If we can, let's get things together here. We're a high brow, classy outfit. Yeah. We're high brow, classy and brow high. Yes. JBL and Orlando Jordan are going to beat the undertaker in 17 minutes and 38 seconds by DQ to retain the WWE heavyweight title. The crowd is booing takers offense and chanting Spanish table, Spanish table. Taker dominates early. JBL comes back about 10 minutes with some offense. They go back and forth and the ref goes down. So Jordan throws the title belt to JBL. He nails Taker with it. And with the ref out, Jordan counts the two, but stops when the undertaker lifts his shoulder. Honesty somehow overtook him. Taker then knocks out Jordan with the belt. The ref comes to in time to see Taker hit JBL with it and calls for the DQ and the entire crowd boos the finish. And then Taker rammed JBL into the limo windshield and then slammed him through the roof of the limo. Two and three quarter stars. Um, this is one of the, even though this match is just sort of there for me because there's a smash finish. I still remember to this day, slamming him through the roof of the limo, which I want to shit on, but I remember it. So clearly you guys did something right. What'd you think of the match? Fucking A, and I thought that the match was damn good, too. The crowd was a little weird. Yes, yeah, so I'm going to give them that. But I thought that the match was damn good, and again, it was another step. Uh, man, JBL, the character was new. This heel, you getting him over, and it was a way to take that next step with the heel champion and, and building that character. So this was an investment. But again, going back and watching all these years later, I thought, son of a bitch. They beat the shit out of each other, and I thought they had a damn good match. Like you say, you remember that last, the last bit, going through the roof of the limo. How can you forget it? So uh, I thought it was damn good shit. I, I enjoyed the hell out of it. Let's talk about something that happened here. Lots of people asked us about this. During the match, a fan climbed onto the roof of the limo, and the roof didn't give way. And JBL believes the only thing that saved that idiot from falling through, which I guess would have been a double whammy because you would have injured the fan and then you would have blown the post-match angle is that one of the people coordinating the stunt had patched the breakaway roof a bit more firmly. So it wouldn't noticeably sag before the chokeslam spot. But somehow when the kid runs across it, it doesn't ruin it. Do you remember seeing that or hearing that? And how bad were you guys flipping out in the back? Oh, we were flipping out, but. 
also figured that, well, hell, since it was designed to go through it, that uh, probably won't happen. So <laughs> we're safe. It's all good. But um, a little bit of panic. Yes. A little bit of panic at that point, because there was a part of me that's thinking, oh, shit, man, do I have footsteps on the fucking thing now? But thank God it didn't get it didn't give way. Uh, JBL has said that that night undertaker offered to put him over clean, but JBL declined the offer. What do you make of that assertion? Well, he did. And, and taker wanted, again, it was contrary to a lot of popular belief. You know, there were guys, they wanted to get Layfield over. We needed to get a strong heel over. We needed to build new stars. And that's what taker was looking to do. Taker was looking to build JBL and get that character over as much as he could. A clean win over the Undertaker would have done that. And we went with the heat finish just to, again, feeling that it would put more heat on the character with the disqualification. Hindsight, I think I would have still gone with the DQ. Next up, our main event, what everybody really remembers about this show. It's Randy Orton and Chris Benoit for the world heavyweight title. They're going to go 20 minutes and nine seconds. And they begin a slow build and build the pace as they go. Benoit gets some near submissions throughout and scores six consecutive Germans, which was really, really cool to see in this time. Orton surprises Benoit with an RKO out of nowhere. I think we would see that a lot coming up and that's the pin. Benoit leaves and then returns to shake hands with Orton. It's a four-star, very good match, according to Wade Keller. And it really cements Randy Orton as not only a top guy, but with one devastating finishing maneuver, probably the likes of which we haven't seen in a while here in WWE. What'd you think of the match? And then we'll talk about sort of the behind the scenes. I thought it was excellent. Uh, I felt that the, the match was absolutely excellent. And, and it's what Randy needed to have that credibility as a champion. So I don't know what else to say other than those guys busted their ass and Benoit made Randy Orton that night. Randy Orton was able to hang and say, fuck you. I'm here and I'm going to be a major player. I just, I thoroughly enjoyed the shit out of it. It is a really good match. If you can watch Benoit matches, I understand a lot of people don't want to. We're not here to talk about that today, but this is a really good one because you see him really make a young guy Randy Orton. And at this point, Randy Orton had been a player on evolution and he, and he was definitely on the, you know, the, the uptake having feuds with, uh, Mick Foley and, and, and a lot of other wins over legends and, and big matches and moments and intercontinental title wins. But here he becomes the youngest WWE world champion in history at just 24 years and four months, which beats the previous record from Brock Lesnar, which was 25 years and six weeks two years prior to this at SummerSlam 02. Talk to me. Uh, I guess we should mention this too, as a little footnote. I think this is the last time the world title would change hands at SummerSlam for the next five years. Uh, I think the next time it happened was SummerSlam 09 when Punk beat Jeff Hardy in a TLC match. But chat me up here. Is it even discussed? Did you guys know Did anybody ask or put two and two together that, Hey, if, uh, if Orton wins here, He'll be the youngest champ, not Brock. No, never. Okay. 
I, I didn't even know that till you said it. Uh, well, it was talked about a lot on the show at the time. Orton got this title shot by winning a number one contender. That would be not after have watched it. I mean, fuck, come on. Yeah, I understand. You know what I mean? Yes. Uh, Orton gets this title shot by winning a number one contenders battle Royal on raw. And I think a lot of people assumed, you know, they're just, they're just trying this. He's not really going to win the world title because it was such a big moment at the end of WrestleMania 20, when you see Eddie Guerrero and Chris Benoit there and the big, you know, confetti, it was a really cool moment, a really cool treatment. And a couple of months after that, Guerrero loses his a couple of months after that, Benoit loses his and they lose them to JBL and Randy Orton, not to disparage either one of those talents, but that does feel like a deviation from an Eddie Guerrero and a Chris Benoit. At this point, had McMahon lost a little bit of confidence in this style of performer and felt like he needed more of a quote unquote WWE style performer? I don't think so, no. And it was a decision made, first of all, with Layfield because we needed to we needed new characters and, and that was the goal there and that was something that eddie guerrero actually suggested what if i dropped the title to him it's like well you know what that would sure as fuck make him um on the raw side you just said it you couldn't predict it this was a this was uh you can't call it right and it was shocking and it was one of those situations where you're looking at it and nobody i don't think anybody in the building could really call that match so that to me is the perfect attraction when you can't call it. So again, Randy being the future, and here was a kid coming up fresh and young, looked the part, was the part, fit everything about it, and it was time to go that way. So let's let's try it and let's move. The business is fluid and when you when you're live every week and you're in that situation where, well, let's, let's try something else. You have that luxury when you have live TV and a pay-per-view every month. So it was like, what if let's try it with Randy and see what we've got there. Let me ask this, you know, and I know you're going to get real fired up when I ask, but I just can't help myself. You know, when we're trying to make Chris Benoit, you, you told the story that we didn't necessarily think that it was the fact that Chris Benoit and triple H couldn't main event or wasn't enough star power. Benoit wasn't, wasn't enough to be a main eventer. We wanted to put him in a three way at WrestleMania with Shawn Michaels, just to make it even more impressive that we get Benoit over. We do a rematch and it's more of the same. And then eventually we have singles matches with uh, triple H and, and their iron man matches. And, and we've talked about that on this show. So we've really established Chris Benoit as a top guy, but now here is a surprise. Something you couldn't call the RKO out of nowhere. We're getting that finish over, but just like a month later, less than a month later, triple H beats Randy Orton for the world title. Chat me up. Was Randy Orton a transitional champion because you didn't want to have Randy you didn't want to have Chris lose to Hunter. No, you had a story with evolution. 
you had the whole story with evolution where Randy wins the title. Does Randy get the big head? It was triple H who you've got flair and triple H who are the big dominant dogs in that pack that feel that triple H should be the champion. That was the story it was about evolution. And you put that on Randy. Now it's, well, yeah, you know what kid good for you bringing the title back to evolution, but it really belongs around me. That was the story. It was all story driven. There's wasn't that story. You go back and beat Benoit. Okay. I beat Benoit An evolution guy beat Benoit, but it was the wrong evolution guy in, in Hunter and Flair's mind. It feels very, uh, throwback to when, uh, sting was supposed to have a title shot in the NWA and flair was the world champ. And of course the rest of the horsemen just assumed, well, sting was going to forfeit his title shot because it was against flair another member of the horseman. And when he didn't want to, they kick him out. So that's, what's going to happen the next night on wrong. We're going to get there, but when did you guys decide, Hey, this is the direction we want to go. And we're going to break up evolution and Randy Orton's the guy. I, I really and truly don't remember. Um, I want to say it was it was during the summer, obviously, but I, I don't remember that exact moment other than Randy Orton consistently going out and having the best matches on the on the show and going, hmm, we might have a baby face on our hand there. So no matter what he did, he's go, he goes out there and he's cool and evolution's cool and all this shit. And, and at the time, man, they're, they're liking what Randy's doing. He's young. He's good looking. Fucking they're liking what Batista's doing. It's like, oh shit. Um, are we going to have a cool group or do we need to have a heel group? And by doing this little flip flop in there with Randy, he gets Randy over to the baby face side and it's a story. So I just think it, it kind of came just natural progression. You start listening to the audience going, well, fuck. And you strike when you can, no pun intended, and get what you can out of it. Was Triple H reluctant to break up evolution? Uh, why did you guys think, hey, this has sort of run its course? Well, the audience the audience was letting us know. And the audience was, was again, finding Randy and Batista cool. They liked them. So I was like, well, are, there, are you going to be a heel faction? Or are you going to be a, a baby face faction? And we needed that heel faction there. So slide one of them out. You got four guys there to fuck with slide one of them out and you're good to go. It's worth mentioning Chris Benoit never won the belt again. Uh, what do you think of that? Don't think anything of it. I mean, a five, five month run, not a big deal, not disparaging it. I know a lot of people are going to say, oh, it wasn't long enough, but flair wasn't champ very long either. I'm just saying, I think when I think about Chris Benoit's world champion, I do kind of think it was longer than five months and it really wasn't like, I. I don't know why that moment uh, in time of him being champion really sticks out so much to me. Wasn't necessarily a hardcore diehard fan at this point, but uh, I still feel like it, it feels like he was champion longer than just a few months. Doesn't it to you? 
Yeah, it does. But it, it, at the same time, who, who's to say how long is the right time? When sure. it's time, it's time. And the same could be said with same could be said with Eddie. But yet, people still remember Eddie is the champion in, in that whole the whole time. People even go through the the JBL run and think that Eddie was champion through more of that than he was. So it's it's interesting when people say, oh, well, they should have left him on it. Oh, they left it on him too long. Right, right. It's it's all subjective, and sure. I think that you you did hit it on the head when people talk about it. It does feel like it was a lot longer, but it, it was time. And it wasn't a wasn't an indictment of his work or anything else. It was there was another story. We've got to move on and move everybody on to, to different shit. We should mention that, uh, the next night on raw Lillian Garcia would introduce Randy Orton as the new world heavyweight champion. And when the crowd cheered Orton, he told them he didn't have, they didn't have faith in him. So he didn't want their cheers. And he asked all the 24 year old men to stand up and take off their shirts to prove how much better he was than them. And a music video airs, sort of highlighting Orton. And he says the Orton era has just begun. And Chris Benoit comes out and says he's getting his rematch and exercising his rematch clause tonight. And later in the show, Orton gets the win 20 minutes and 10 seconds. He retains. And afterwards, triple H flair and Batista are celebrating with Orton. But when Batista has Orton on his shoulders, Hunter turns his thumbs up to a thumbs down and Batista drops Orton on the mat. Hunter beats him bloody and says, you're nothing without evolution. So even though we tried our best to turn Randy Orton heel, this of course turns him a baby face and he's going to stay in that role going into 2005. Uh, what do you think of Randy as a baby face? I, I, I'm not going to shit on it, but I am going to say that I much prefer Randy Orton as a bad guy. Randy Orton is a bad guy. <laughs> well, Randy not, not is really. a natural heel. Yeah, he is a natural heel. He just, he looks like a guy where you're like, ah, oh, fuck that guy. I don't know why, but people. You know, people say that about Charlotte too. They say that, you know, she looks hateable and, and, and I prefer Charlotte as a heel to a baby face too, but Randy Orton, I just always prefer as a heel. And this sets up Randy Orton against triple H at the next pay-per-view unforgiven. And as we said, triple H is going to get the win there. That sort of brings us to a close here for SummerSlam 2004. We're going to get to some questions, but before we do, how did you rate SummerSlam 04? It doesn't feel like a show that's talked about very often, but there was certainly a lot of noteworthy stuff that happened here. There was, I, you know, full disclosure here. I watched this a couple of weeks ago when I thought we were going to do it. So I didn't rewatch it, went through the notes and everything, but I wasn't, it was one of those. I wasn't blown away with going, fuck man, that was a great show. It was a very good show, but it was not like a blow blew my mind. Great show. I thought it was very good, but it was, it wasn't blow my mind. Well, we, it, we hope to blow your mind next week with SummerSlam 1999, uh, put it on your, your must watch list. It goes down August 22nd, 1999. So about 20 years ago next week. And on top, it's a three-way with mankind, Stone Cold, Steve Austin, and triple H the rock and Billy Gunn are going to have a kiss my ass match. And there's lots more craziness on here, including a lion's den weapons match, a granite street fight match, lots of fun stuff. Uh, so watch SummerSlam 99 this week to prepare for next week. But before you do, let's get to some of your questions. We posted on both Facebook and Twitter. 
If you haven't already follow us on Twitter at Pritchard show, or check us out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. We're going to rapid fire these Bruce. Are you ready? I am ready. Uh, Jim wants to know if flair was 55 in 2004, and still considered to be a high profile wrestler with younger guys like triple H and Cena now on the rise and being super popular themselves. It begs the question, how big was Batista's dick? Still thinking about it. Johnny great wants to know, why didn't you give Rhino and Tajiri the tag title since you were hyping it so long. And then you didn't even give them a shot after some corny horse shit with La resistance and Finner interfering in some beat the clock nonsense against some random jobbers. I don't fucking know. It's so great that old Johnny T great. <laughs> All these years later, I'm talking about 15 I'm years pissed. later, he's fucking furious that Tajiri was robbed of his tag team title run. I don't oh. know why that fucking tickled me, but it did. Uh, a great friend of the show, ADC, the weird owl of wrestling, Andrew David Cox wants to know, given the Olympic theme of the SummerSlam artwork, how well does Bruce Pritchard think that Batista would have done in the pole vault? Did he have like a gymnastics background? I, I didn't know that. Some sort of track and field. Doesn't look like a runner. Ed Dead by Dawn wants to know Was there a wrestler's court punishment for the experienced divas being beaten by the new divas? Ivory has said this was punishment. I think they sh that there should have been, yes. I think they all should have been punished severely. Jeff wants to know Kane being Alita's baby daddy. <laughs> Who booked that shit? <laughs> that was great shit. Punt the baby. I love that shit. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh. Well, lots of questions about and this one comes from Ron P. Hypothetically, what would it sound like if Jim Cornette was to sing Randy Orton's theme song? Voices in my head every night, motherfucker. Sometimes when I'm just sitting here, thunder going off around me. He uh dreaming. He used the evolution theme song at this pay-per-view. Well, I know, but all I know is I hear voices in my fucking head. No, I know. It was just one of the comments. They wanted me to say that to get you fired okay. up again. Uh just Chris wants to know, did you expect Edge to get booed in Toronto? No, not at all. What's up with that? I, you know, if you fucking put a baby face in there and he's not from Toronto and they cheer the, I don't fuck the Canadian, they eat poutine that I didn't get any of bastards. Well, here's something everybody can get some of. This is a Billy gun fact. This is a question from the Billy gun fact account. All right. And how about this? Uh, Bruce's house was legit. Just struck by lightning. So we're going to wrap things up, Bruce. Uh, some people will do anything to get out of work. Uh, let's see if Vince buys this shit. Holy fuck. Okay. Right. What shit? <laughs> Are you okay? Is everybody all right? 
Yeah, I think so. I'm out in the office, man. I can't. I'm, I'm afraid to go out over the house. Well, ladies oh, and gentlemen, this is it's ugly. Uh, it's ugly here, folks. Those those that are in Friendswood on when we're taping this, they'll know. Well, even if you're not, we appreciate you braving the, uh, the lightning storm to join us here. Talk a little SummerSlam 2004 tune in next week for SummerSlam 99. If Bruce is still alive, we'll see you next week right here on something to wrestle with Shaka Khan, Bruce Pritchard. Oh, and Hey, before we get out of here, we should mention it's never okay to drive stoned. You put yourself and others in danger and a DUI covers more than just alcohol drugs that make you feel different also make you drive different and you can get a DUI. If you've been using marijuana in any form, do not get behind the wheel. If you feel different, you drive different, drive high, get a DUI. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round together. It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you fifteen to twenty? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B L E A V on YouTube or wherever you listen.